All right. Hey, guys. Good to uh, see you. I don't actually see you. <laughs> but uh, before I get into the first question today, um, let me give you guys a quick health update for those who are interested to know. Um, and if you don't know me, I'm Mike Winger, pastor in Southern California, trying to answer your questions to the best of my ability with real solid biblical answers and information and insights, God willing, and be a blessing into your life to show you the goodness and the truth, the truth of God's word and of the Christian worldview and to build you up and strengthen you in those things. At least that's my hope. Uh, not because of my ability to do any of that, but because God's word is that wonderful. It has this effect on us that when we study and when we understand the scriptures, it strengthens us, it builds us up, it convicts us, it brings us into right relationship with God and all that good stuff. So quick little health update. Um, <clears throat> so I did get COVID and I've been kind of out of it for, very out of it for a while, for a few weeks, I guess, a couple two and a half weeks or so. Um, well, I'm still kind of, kind of getting over it. I'm hoping today that I can talk for a long period of time. It's the first time I've tried uh, without coughing a lot. I, I already can feel I'm going to be coughing, but I got cough drops. I'm doing whatever I can on my side. And I got a little mute button that should do what it just did there and block the coughs out. Anyway, I am, I'm getting better. I didn't get COVID so bad that it was like scary. It was just really draining and all this other stuff. So I'm um, still getting over that. Cough is lingering and a, a little bit of that uh, tiredness, well, maybe more than a little bit, is still there. But I'm trying to get work behind the scenes done as much as I can while I wait on my ability to be able to teach straight through without interrupting too much with coughing because um, I don't want to do these next uh, videos in the Women in Ministry series with a bunch of coughing, interrupting them. I think it's it's not long-term going to be a good idea to do that. So I'm studying and prepping and getting ahead so I can more quickly bring you those videos once I'm able to do that. All right, let's just go to question number one. Um, and you guys are loading your questions in the chat and all that good stuff. So this is from Claire Leclerc, who says, I'm confused about why Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden but then instructs us to pick up our cross of suffering and follow him. That sounds like a heavy burden to me to try to love and obey Jesus perfectly. And I can totally understand, Claire, like why this feels that way to you. I hope that my explanation will make sense of it, will bring it, you know, to a place where you go, oh, I, I get it. I get it. Um, so let's first look at the passage in Matthew where Jesus actually says, take my yoke upon you. So here we are, verse 28 of Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we often hear people uh, preach this passage um, maybe slightly different than how Jesus originally meant it. Not that it doesn't apply here, but it's just a, a bit of a different angle, right? Like it's a piece of what Jesus meant perhaps, but it's not the whole thing. And they tend to preach it from the angle of like um, psychological issues. You're burdened with with stress. You're burdened with um, the, the things going on in your life, psychological, you know, burdens. And Jesus is going to give you rest from those. Now, I, I absolutely affirm that Jesus does give us rest from those things, but I don't affirm that that's the primary point of what Jesus is saying right here. At least, I don't think so. So let me give you a couple insights that I think will help us understand Jesus' statement a little better. And one of them is if you just go later on in Matthew where Jesus talks about somebody else's yoke 
and it's 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 not his yoke, the one that that that's you know easy and the burden that's light. It's uh, the yoke of the Pharisees and the scribes. And when you look at these guys, Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. That sounds like a yoke, doesn't it? Right? Because a yoke, not a yolk, not a, not an egg yolk, <laughs> but a yoke. The this is like a wooden thing you put on a beast of burden so that it can carry these things. And this could be like a teacher saying, here's all my teachings. You're taking them upon yourself. You're going to follow me. You're going to do what I say. And that is the yoke. Let me just make sure there's everything's... Yeah, we're good. Um, <clears throat> so they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders. That's one of Jesus' complaints about the Pharisees, the scribes, those, those who were sitting in the seat of Moses. And they offered no rest for people's souls. They only offered labor, but labor that never led to rest or like a six-day work week, but with no Sabbath. There's no rest for these people. There's only labor for them. Jesus says, I'm offering you rest. So the Pharisees offer labor. Jesus offers rest. That's interesting, right? Now, what did they do that was heavy burdens? They added to the word of God. They added to scriptures. They had all kinds of rules. In addition to the laws that God had given in the Old Testament, they had tons of extra rules making it more strict and more complicated to try to follow things like the Sabbath law. Remember when they, the, these Pharisaic leaders came after Jesus' disciples because they grabbed heads of grain, just with their hands, grab a head of grain, they rub it in their hands to get the chaff off, and then they put it in their mouth and ate their kernels. They actually came against them were like, this is unlawful, they, they, can't, they can't do this. And Jesus is like, obviously not down with this, this extra burdens where they make the law more and more burdensome by focusing on minutia and ignoring the heart of the law of love. This is something that Jesus sees as a problem and it never leads to rest, right? It never leads them to what? Salvation, ultimately. It never leads them to right relationship with God. It's labor for salvation they'll never receive because their works are never good enough. So it's all burden with no rest. Then Jesus goes on to say that these same leaders, they're not themselves willing to move with their finger these burdens. They will not help the people with the burdens. They will only give them the burdens. They're just the distributors of rules, but they're not going to do anything to bring them that peace, to bring them that salvation, that forgiveness, that grace. Jesus does the opposite. Jesus took all the burdens of the law and put them on his own shoulders. Jesus then accomplished them on our behalf then Jesus gives us the rest. So he's like, hey, take my yoke upon you, right? The burden there is I'm the one who's doing all the work. You receive the salvation. Unlike them who wouldn't lift a finger to help the people, Jesus does all the labor and helps and saves us. So I think that that gives us some context for what Jesus means when he says, take my yoke upon you. He's like saying, I'm giving you free salvation. You've been laboring under the system of extra rules and minutiae and you'll never receive salvation that way, and you're never good enough to, but I will be good enough for you. I, I'll bring you rest. Uh, there's another side of this too, which connects to Exodus, I think, in the Old Testament. And that is this, that the, the Egyptians had the people under bondage, under heavy bondage, and God delivers the people. Pardon me. He delivers the people out of bondage in the book of Exodus. As you see the story, the big overarching story of scripture that all points to Jesus. And in Exodus, they, they, they leave Egypt, this bondage, and they're supposed to be brought into the promised land, a place of rest. Then God gives them this cycle of Sabbath and rest, Sabbath and rest, unlike the, I'm sorry, uh, work and rest, work and Sabbath, unlike the oppression of the Egyptians. So when you see this in light of Jesus, it starts to make sense because 
the book of Hebrews, which we'll get into actually uh, next year, I'll be teaching through the book of Hebrews. Um, the people never fully entered this rest because they couldn't obey the laws, these burdens, in order to fully accomplish the things God was calling them to do. So they never entered that rest. Jesus comes, he fulfills the law, gives us the rest. I think that there's a parallel here that's to say, Jesus is the one who brings us the Sabbath. Now, when you realize it's not just about psychological rest, in me feeling the burdens of life, like my stress about paying mortgage or something, it's not just like that. It's, it's so much bigger and more important than that, bigger and more important than that, in bringing us rest from the toil of failing to fulfill the law of God, failing to fulfill the holiness of God, and standing with no rest on the precipice of judgment when we die. Jesus brings us that rest. So in Matthew 23, I'll go back to it, uh, sorry, Matthew 11, we'll go back to it now. In this passage, we have Jesus who says, hey, I'm going to give you rest. And the very next section in Matthew 12, Jesus is described as Lord of the Sabbath. I think this is no coincidence. He is the one who brings us rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, bringing the rest to the people. That is, and forgive me if my explanation is a bit clumsy today, my whole brain's a little bit clumsy today. Um, but the Exodus narrative shows through the book of Hebrews that they never entered the rest. Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to give you rest, calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, shows that he's bringing us into the ultimate rest of God, which is ultimately salvation through his works, not your own. That's an easy burden, just trusting in Christ for salvation. So the next question we, we need to ask, Claire, what you're asking is, is that in contradiction with the idea of taking up my cross? Is this idea of I'm free salvation, I, Jesus does all the work, but yet I'm told I have to take up my cross, right? Luke chapter uh, 9, or, or I can't follow Jesus. Let me put these two together in a way that I think will make sense for people, which is to say, what, what work must you do to be saved? Nothing. Jesus did all the work, right? Jesus does it all. That's him, you know, giving you rest, taking this easy burden, this easy yoke. But what choice must you make to choose that salvation? We have to choose between this life, worldly life, ungodly life, and Christ's light and holiness and goodness and love for all eternity. When you have to pick between these two different options, you realize that the rest that Jesus gives you brings rest to your spirit, but it does not bring rest to your flesh, right? My spirit gets rest, but the flesh gets the cross. My spirit who longs for God and desires God, and, and I, I want the freedom from sin to know God and know Christ, I have full rest in, in, in the yoke of Christ, but my flesh sees the cross as the death sentence. So G the cross then represents death and life at the same time, death to my flesh, life to my spirit, and eternal life to me. So you need to choose between the flesh and the spirit, ultimately, which is what Galatians talks about and other places too. So Jesus's yoke is rest for your soul, but it's death to your flesh. It, it kills the boasting of your flesh, thinking that you've earned salvation, and it kills the flesh's control over your life because Jesus is, is liberating you, just like God liberated them from the Egyptians, so they could be free and be his children, right? Nationally, as the children of God, Israel. So we are being liberated from the control of the flesh so we could be sons and daughters of God and walk in the spirit. It's all, I think, beautiful and they're paralleled. And I hope I did a decent job explaining it. We will go to question number two. Let me bring that up here. Somewhere. All right. This is an anonymous question. <clears throat> We're supposed to trust God with all our hearts. 
What does it look like look like to trust God with the free will decisions of others like our adult children? So glad to have you back. Um that's a that okay, that's a hugely challenging issue, mostly because of um how much our hearts are in turmoil over these types of things. So let me try to point towards some answers on this type of question, and I hope that you find some benefit in it. So um one of the things I want to recognize is that trusting God with my heart, I don't know how we interact or how we layer that over trusting God with the free will decisions of others, because it almost acts as though, when we put it that way, it almost acts as though it's God that is actually causing the free will decisions of our of our children on whether they'll receive Christ or not, or maybe whether they'll do something hazardous or dangerous or cruel or evil. Right? Am I, I'm trusting God with their decision? That's giving God responsibility for their decision in a sense. And I don't do that. I'm not, I'm not in that camp of, of believers who would kind of have that divine determinism where God sort of is causing everything uh, to some degree. I don't want to get into that big debate, but because there's the compatibilist and all this other stuff, but moving on, <laughs> I'm just not in that camp. Um, so I would, I, I don't have to trust God like, Lord, I trust that it was good that they made that bad decision or that I'm happy that they made that. Obviously, that's not the kind of thing of trusting God. So where's the, where, where do I trust God with other people's bad decisions? Well, I trust in a few ways that come to my mind at least, and I hope you find some benefit in this. One way I trust is knowing that um, God will ultimately use it for good. Not that it was good, but God will use it for good. And there's a huge difference between those two things, a world of difference. Right? Judas betraying Jesus wasn't good, but God used it for good. Pilate condemning Jesus wasn't good, but God used it for good. There's horrible things that happen, and I take some comfort in knowing that God will at least utilize this as part of his overall plan for mankind and for different people. He'll bring some measure of good out of it. Uh, it doesn't make the thing good, and I'm not suggesting that whatever good God brings out of it outweighs the evil. I, I'm not making those kind of judgments. I'm just saying at least God's doing something in the midst of this horrible thing. Another way in which I trust God is, and this is probably the more challenging part, um, trusting that if the people I love make decisions that bring them before God's judgment seat to be punished, to be condemned, that God was in fact right when he condemned them. And this can be really challenging because I love these people and so my heart goes out to them and you know, we, we sort of start picking sides. But I, I remember people... Um, um, in school, there was uh, there were some people that were just like you guys know what I'm talking about. They were just real jerks, like they're really horrible individuals, but they were funny, or they were there was something about them that was likable, but they were character wise, they were just like a horrible individual. And then you know there were individuals who would be like, yeah, I don't like that person because of their character. I have a problem with their character. Others would be like, well, but they're funny or whatever, so I don't care. And they would overlook the character issues because they had a personal like of that individual. Um, I'm not saying this is what goes on with your children, but there's a um, there is a parallel that has some connection. That is, I have a deep personal love for this person, and so I just want them to come out on top, no matter what they do wrong, no matter what they say, no matter how bad their character is. I just want them to come out on top. That can sometimes be a wonderful quality as a parent, but it can also conflict with very, with goodness itself and holiness itself. And this is where 
you trust that God, you don't have to be the judge. You don't have to make the judgments on your children. You can still root for them and pray for them and hope for them and all this, but you can trust that God will make the proper judgment. He loves them more than you. He wants to see them saved, but that want to see them saved isn't the same as just overlooking their own decisions to perhaps reject the gospel of Christ, blaspheme the Holy Spirit even. Um, rather, God is not only loving them, but he's also the proper judge. He'll have perfect love and perfect judgment. You don't have to have perfect love and judgment towards your kids, but you do need to have trust in your heart that when God takes over as judge, he will do the right thing and you will just trust him. I I, um, I don't know if, I mean, you can't solve problems of, gr of grieving parents over the horrible decisions of their kids. Like this, there's no problem to solve here. It's just a horrible situation. But I hope that these words give you at least some insight, some way of looking at it in a way that lets you trust God more in this area. I really hope it does. Let's go to question three. Aaron says, what's your take on Christian pastors practicing and teaching dream interpretation using dream dictionaries, Google, and their own reasoning to interpret? Um, <clears throat> I'm Okay, Aaron, my personal take, uh, I'm thoroughly opposed to this. So if you have a dream that's from the Lord, then that means that dream was this is, this is the important factor. It was Holy Spirit given. If it, if it wasn't from the Lord, if it wasn't the Holy Spirit given, why am I trying to interpret it? But if it was Holy Spirit given, then I would seek to have an interpretation that I don't learn from any source other than the Holy Spirit. The interpreting of a dream in that case would be a spiritual gift and not a skill you practice where you sort of learn the language of dreams. Right? I, I don't know what this means, you know, when when there was interpretations of dreams in scripture, uh, when we have the, the dreams of Pharaoh interpreted, right, or we have or the dreams of the baker, right? The, the Joseph interprets their dreams when he's in prison with these two guys. Or we have um and then and then Pharaoh after that, or you know, other dreams, Nebuchadnezzar dreams interpreted. There were those who were skilled with dream interpretation, right? That is, if they were given the dream in Nebuchadnezzar's case. <clears throat> They were given the dream, then they could go, oh, <clears throat> oh, I can interpret that dream. I can tell you what it means. I've, I've, I've got the sort of roadmap of interpreting dreams. I can assign symbolism to the different factors and, and figure it out. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't want a, someone to try to figure out the dream based upon those kinds of things. He wanted to, them to prove that they had divine inspiration in understanding the dream. So he wouldn't tell them the dream in Daniel. He goes, I will not tell you the dream. You have to tell me the dream and the interpretation. Because then it will prove that you're not just guessing at the secret meaning of my dreams. You're actually having some sort of divine inspiration. So Daniel's the only one who comes up and God reveals the dream to him and the interpretation. This is, this is the standard I think I see in scripture. Dreams are not interpreted by sort of like, um, I, I know the symbols of, of, of the subconscious mind or something like this, right? Dream dictionary, stuff like this. That is probably what Nebuchadnezzar's dream interpreters would have done. And he rejects that. God shows his power in that he provides inspiration because he was the source of the dream and he knows what it means. So who's going to tell you other than the Holy Spirit? That being said, I would look at dream interpretation as being something given by the Spirit and not by dream dictionaries, Google, and their own reasoning to interpret. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess, Aaron, and I'm going to say that maybe, just maybe, you're in a community of people, this, this, this pastor you're talking about is in a community of people who are very excited about God speaking through dreams. 
They're so excited about God speaking through dreams that perhaps they're assigning spiritual meaning to dreams that don't have any spiritual meaning. And so they're needing to find interpretations where God is not providing the dream or an interpretation. So they're having to find other means of interpreting. So they go to dictionaries and Google and people's own reasoning. That may be what's going on there. My honest opinions, that's what you asked for. So number four, uh, Andrea says, what do you say to a skeptic that thinks Christianity is just man a man-made thing created as a means to control people? Oh, I love this one. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> prove it is what you should say to them. Can you prove that? What evidence do you have for that? I like what Greg Kogel says. He goes, how did you come to that conclusion? That's your response to them. They've made a bold claim about the origin and purpose of Christianity. This is a historical claim. The origin and purpose of Christianity. And then it's just, let me quote you here what you said. Um, just a man-made thing created as a means to control people. What's your evidence for that? This is You've got to push this on them because there's no evidence for this. Um, <coughs> furthermore, there's evidence against this. There's actually evidence against this idea because when Christianity came on the scene, the people in power who are actually controlling and trying to control people, right? Like the Roman government or the Jewish religious leadership or the Jewish even government, right? Herod. They're all trying to end Christianity and stop Christianity. All those who want to control people are seeking to stop it. What about the leaders of Christianity? As it organically explodes and goes all over the place, are they, are they trying to start um, a replacement of Judaism? No, they're not actually, they're not trying to annihilate Judaism or stop Judaism. They're just showing Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment. Are they trying to control people governmentally? No, they're, you know, Romans 14 tells us, Submit to the government. Submit to the leaders. Be respectful. Jesus says, my servants, uh, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. If The thing is, the person who says that Christianity was created to control people is um, so hugely ignorant of the origin of Christianity, of its nature, of what, what the actual teachings are, and how it developed over time, that they're willing to make broad sweeping statements about the core origin of a religious system they don't even understand apparently why because there's there's something else going on in the heart of a person a skeptic who makes this kind of claim christianity was not made to control people um it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't show any of those signs even beyond that we see that the leaders of christianity aren't seeking to stir up for people to follow them but people instead to follow jesus um in fact they're opposed to this sort of thing paul writes like hey there's people who are going to come among you trying to just follow, uh, get disciples to follow after themselves. He warns, I think it's the Ephesian elders in Acts that Paul warns about this, that after his departure, people are going to try to like start their own team. And he goes, don't do that. Just be a follower of Jesus, right? Like don't follow people. Don't make it about people. Make it about following the Lord. This is different than the leaders, like say of Mormonism, where you have a current president who's overseeing all of the people. Jesus decentralized the church so there would just be individuals, an organic body all over the world, following a savior who's not leading a government, who's not leading a big rebellion, but who's leading people to know God and follow him and know him. So anyway, there's no reason to think that that's true. There's every reason to think it's false. Um, but rather, before you go into the defense, Andrea, before you defend Christianity against this claim, push back on the person who made it, 
make them defend it first. They're the one making the wild claim. When you actually look at the history, it looks more like Christianity started not to control people, but because people just really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then the early church exploded because people believed that where all these miracles were taking place and all this amazing stuff was happening, this seems to be what was really going on. It didn't stir up rebellions. It didn't stir up um, some sort of central governmental type controls. It just sat there and said, hey, we just really think Jesus rose and you should follow him. Uh, number five, <clears throat> Hot Wax 93 says, I've been thinking. Sorry. Uh, you say, I've been thinking about this question a lot since Queen Elizabeth died last month, but have had it for a while. Does First Samuel 8 verses 6 through 7 teach that monarchy is unbiblical? Let's get into that. First Samuel 8 verses 6 and 7. Okay, so in the context of this passage, if I remember correctly, is that, um, actually, I, let me give you a bit of a broader context. Um, okay, so God has different ways of governing the Israeli, the, the Jewish people. Um, first, they're brought out of Egypt, and the person who's leading them is ultimately Moses, and then you have other leaders under him. Then they're brought into the promised land, and as they're about to go in, the, the leadership mantle is handed over to Joshua. Then they go into the promised land and they settle into different locations during Joshua's time. After that, they don't really have one central leader for the most part, for the most part. Rather, they're to be governing themselves according to the laws that God has given them. And so there's no central king because the idea is that God is the king of Israel. The messengers that God occasionally, not always, but occasionally raises up are people called judges. Then you get the book of Judges, right? Othniel and... Um, uh, Ehud and Deborah and you, you, know, you go through Samson, you guys are all familiar with Samson um, and Samuel is one of these judges. These people get ri they rise up and they just go on a circuit through Israel handling hard cases cases that the local government, the city government can't seem to handle. These people will travel around, they'll handle the hard cases and they'll also bring sometimes messages from God or they'll lead a military um, response to oppressors coming from outside of Israel. So in this setting, God is king. Israel in particular, not other nations, but Israel has no king except God. He has representatives like the judges, but no king. That's the idea of the, of the judges. Then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and they want a king. The people are asking for a king. Give us a king like all the nations around us. And this thing, of course, it says here in verse 6, displeased. Here, I'll back up a little bit so you can see it. Um, the elders of Israel, verse 4, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Right? So your sons aren't going to be a good king for us, which they weren't supposed to be. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, what I think has happened here is you've taken this verse and you're wondering, is this true of every nation that has a king? Is it possible that every nation has, by asking for a king, by having a king or queen, they've rejected God from being king over them? And I think the answer to this is no. Um, and that's because every nation's not Israel. And this is really important to recognize, is just that Israel's very unique. 
there was nothing wrong with them having a king if you were not Israel, right? But when God has one nation of the whole world who he pulls aside and he says, I'll be your king, this is a very special relationship with God and Israel, which extends through Jesus to all people, of course, as he's our king, but not of an earthly kingdom, of a heavenly one. So there was everything wrong with Israel asking for a king. There's nothing wrong with other nations having a king. So uh, let me... Uh, Uh, take you to some other scripture here. So 1 Peter 2.17, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You could translate that as king, honor the king. So this is not seen as a bad thing. You're to honor them. Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, so other kings don't compete with God, or you know, unless they're trying to ask you not to obey Christ unless they put some stumbling block in your walk, in which case you obey God, not the government. So this is this is not necessarily bad. God doesn't rebuke nations other than Israel for just having kings. Nowhere in scripture am I aware of any place where God rebukes nations for having kings. And even though this was a bad thing, it doesn't even mean that every king after after Samuel's time was a bad was a bad thing either. It was a bad moment, a bad decision, a bad request, but then God appoints David as king. And David is God's chosen one, right? The man after God's own heart. And then God ultimately restores, this is the beautiful part, he restores his kingship over Israel through Jesus when they say Jesus is king, right? When they come to Jesus, it's God himself being king over them. And God is my my king through Jesus, King Jesus, um, even today. So um, I hope that helps. It's just that we're waiting on his earthly kingdom to come. Um, Anyway, I, 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 I feel my own fuzzy brain being affected here a little bit from all this sickness. But number six, Zucklack says, How can Satan, an angel much smarter than us, be so unwise as to oppose an all-powerful God? Does Satan think he stands a chance of winning in the end? Um, here's an interesting thing, Zucklack. If you understand, and there's a deba debate on this. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, these two verses, two chapters, I think they're both referring to to uh, Satan at, at various points in those chapters. And you can remember these chapters easy because you think, <laughs> this is dumb, but um, Isaiah 14 times 2, Ezekiel's 28. <laughs> and you'll never, you'll never forget these, uh, these passages. If you take those to refer to Satan, right, where he's like, I will do these, I will exalt myself to the right hand of the Most High, this, this is the Isaiah passage, I believe, where, where Satan says, I will do these things. It's all the I wills of Satan. I think it's like seven of them. Um, maybe it's seven, maybe it's more. He has all these I wills. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But when you look at what he's actually doing, he's not actually trying to compete against God. Interestingly, just for clarity, if you understand this to be about Satan, which I do, there's debate on that among Christians, then what you see is Satan is not saying, I want to replace God He's wanting to be alongside God, like kind of an equal. Maybe even like a partnership. Now, I'm not saying that this is wise. Obviously, this is monumentally foolish. But pride is always foolish. Pride is always, pride, which is like the core issue of Satan, and, and the core issue for many of us and many of our sins, pride is one of the worst sins, Pride is always accompanied, it seems to me, with blindness. 
blindness to others, but especially blindness about yourself, a lack of honest self-awareness about who you really are. Pride overestimates self. Pride underestimates others. And this, it seems to me, this pride that Satan has in his heart causes him to do this with God so that he thinks he can and should be exalted up and be equal to God. It's the opposite of what Jesus does. Jesus, who is equal with God, he's God, right, from all eternity, he lowers himself and becomes a servant, whereas Satan wanted to exalt himself to the right hand of then Jesus is, after, and read Philippians, he is exalted then to the right hand of the Father. But this is God who himself demonstrates humility and then, and then, and then takes up his glory again. Um, and within that whole doctrine of the Trinity, understanding of things. So that being said, um, how can Satan, who's much smarter than us, be so unwise to, as to oppose an all-powerful God? Does he think he stands a chance of winning in the end? Well, his initial thing wasn't winning. It was equality. And, he th and why would he think that? Well, it seems to me that the, the pride he had blinded himself, the arrogance he had blinded himself to his own issues and changed his estimation of God, lowering his value, his view of God, exalting his view of himself. And you don't, there, okay, smartness is not a cure for pride. Like no matter how intelligent you are, it will not cure your pride. In fact, uh, Paul warns us, knowledge puffs up. The, the the expansive knowledge you have on certain issues, the, the greater your understanding of things, the greater the chances are that you become arrogant or proud or boastful. And so Satan is much smarter than us. Maybe that played into his pride, actually. That's entirely possible. Um, yes, but, but pride is not cured by intelligence. Pride is only cured by humility. And humility is what Satan does not possess. And pride causes blindness. So yeah, does he think he stands a chance of winning in the end? No, I don't think he does. I think at this point, Satan knows he's going to lose. Um, scripture talks about this. It sort of hints at this. In Mark, when Jesus is casting out demons, they they say to him, when it's the demoniac, and Jesus is is going up to the demoniac, the man who's possessed by tons of, of, of demons, and they say, have you come to cast us out before the time? This is so interesting, um, into, into outer darkness, like to, to judge them. They saw Jesus' first coming, didn't understand that there was a second coming in the future, like a lot of people didn't. Um, so they think in Jesus, when they see him in the flesh, maybe he's come to judge the world. And this means that the, that the demons, they understand that they're going to be judged. Right? They, they get that it's going to happen. Uh, here, let me take you to one of the places in Scripture where you can find this so you guys can see it for yourselves. So they cried out. Uh, this is when Jesus sees this man coming out of the tombs, right? Uh, and behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know there's a time where Jesus, the Lord of all, is going to be tormenting them. Well, that we read about in Revelation when they're cast into the lake of fire. So he's like, hey, if you come here to torment us before the time. So if if Satan's minions know that he's going to fail, certainly he knows. That would be my impression. But just because you know you're doomed, it, it's not going to like stop you from uh, pursuing your agenda and your goals up until that time, just as they were de demonizing this guy, messing up his world and his life for their own purposes, their own power, their own control over things. They're still desiring power, still desiring control. So Satan, it seems, desires as much power and control as he can have until the hammer falls and he can't have it anymore. Um, 
Let's go to question number seven. Uh, Aaron Perryman says, why do you refer to biblical Israel as Palestine when Palestine wasn't even a country until 135-ish BC? So glad you're back. I've missed you. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Um, I go back and forth on that one, Aaron, and it's not intentional. Um, so back in the day, I used to, out of conviction, I would, I would never call it Palestine. Um, I would always call it Israel. And my, my reason for that is because I believe that God actually gave them the land, right? That this is a biblical perspective. God gave them that land. This land is the land of Israel. It's not the land of Palestine named after the, the Philistines or so I've, I've, I've understood if that's accurate historically. Um, then that's a pretty big insult to rename the land after the people that God drove out when he gave it to Israel. So th that's a big deal. Um, and, and that was a conviction of mine. Now, on the other hand, I'm, I'm also aware, just to nuance this a little, that it's possible that God takes, you know, even, even in scripture, even after giving them the land of Israel, he will drive them out for various reasons, give the land to someone else temporarily until he gives it back to them. So I think in the big picture, it's the land of Israel. It will be fully inherited and indwelt by Israel in the future. At some point, all corners of it, including the Gaza Strip and stuff, um, but who am I to declare that that has to happen right now? Because I don't know if God might be in a season of doing something in the land of Israel. He doesn't tell me what his plans are with, with the land and the timing of everything. So I, by conviction, feel like it's it's Israel. Like Palestine seems like an unfit and inappropriate term to use to me. Okay, that's just being honest. And I'm totally wading into uh, people blow each other up literally over these issues. But, I, you know, are we supposed to not think about things because people are mad about it? I don't think so. So why then do I sometimes say Palestine when I'm referring to Israel and I feel like I should say Israel? It's completely unintentional. Here's the thing, Aaron, when I'm reading scholarship on these issues, which I read all the time nowadays, more and more, I've delved into the realm of reading scholarship to try to be more thorough and more better prepared in, in giving you guys answers and giving studies that are really detailed and thoughtful and where I take the time to research beyond what most people can so that my videos are a resource of a goldmine of, of information, God willing, uh, to help people. But in scholarship, it's like universal. Like they almost all call it Palestine. And so I'm just reading this all the time. And it's in the quotes that I take to use for somebody when I'm referring to it. And so it bleeds into my own, uh, just unintentionally, it just bleeds into my own language. That I mean, that's basically it. It's not intentional. It's just, I'm just reading it all the time. And so I end up saying the same thing. I, I lean towards thinking, I don't like that name, Palestine. I think that um, it calling it Palestine seems to lean toward um, suggesting that God has not really given them that land ultimately. And it doesn't always, right? Certainly not everybody who says that. They're just trying to follow scholarship, use terms that everybody understands. But yeah, there's, there's my answer for you, Aaron. I hope that... Helps explain it. It's just my inconsistency is not intentional there. Um, <clears throat> person says, Hi, Pastor Mike. I've been on a few dates with a great girl, but I've realized she's in a church that overemphasizes prophecy and tongues. Um, I sure hope my mute button's working, you guys. <laughs> it's, otherwise, I'm, I'm recording all these loud coughs for you. I hope, I hope it's working. Um, so the church overemphasizes prophecy in tongues, basically NAR. That stands for New Apostolic Reformation, and that's a particular branch of a um, group that overemphasizes gifts. I, I overemphasizes, actually teaches some weird things about, about apostles as well. 
Any advice on how to approach this? Um, I would suggest a few things since you're asking my advice. Okay, take this with a grain of salt because you're asking dating advice here. Okay, this is not like, what's the doctrine of this? What's the scripture on this? This is sometimes a very wiggly world of looking for wisdom and looking for graciousness and seeking to be selfless, but also seeking to be wise about decisions you make about who you might date and marry. So I would say that um, from your brief description, it seems like this is an issue that's worth discussing with her. I think that talking to her about it is a good idea, openly and honestly, and not hiding these differences until later on. Because always, when you're dating, I think it's wise for people to think about their kids. right? If you think, oh, we don't have to deal with this issue, we can agree to disagree. What you have to ask yourself is, are we only going to dis- agree to disagree until we have kids and all of a sudden we can't agree to disagree anymore? We're actually pretty upset because at some point, you know, if you guys get married, you have kids, you're deciding which church they'll go to. Your child is in a youth ministry at this church and the person's encouraging them in tongues in an unbiblical way, perhaps, prophecy in an unbiblical way to follow and submit to some apostle that you're like, that dude's not some apostle. Who is that guy? And so all of a sudden it's like a really heated thing. Well, you should deal with it now and not just delay and wait. This is like an issue that you're going to have to confront, I think. But uh, so I'd say, yeah, in my opinion, take it with a grain of salt. I was. All right. It looks like the stream has improved. Stream is healthy all of a sudden. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't really know where you guys lost me there, um, but. Um, what I'm suggesting, the second piece of advice I'd give for you, person, is to say, um, don't approach the issue like you have to correct and fix her. Not Now, maybe there's some correction that has to be brought at some point, but approach the issue first like you just want to unpack and understand each other. Just seek understanding. Don't offer judgments yet. Don't offer, just seek understanding and create a situation where you guys can talk openly about these things and and even if you ended up somehow agreeing to disagree, you know, you know, you need to be able to talk about it. Agreeing to disagree is not like we can't talk about that issue ever. Um, that's not the same thing. So, boy, I, I hope that that advice helps a little bit for you. This is a challenging thing, man. A great girl, like, yeah. Be honest with her, though. But make sure that she understands, that you understand her before you try to get her to understand you. And I think that will build a bridge. Let's go to number nine. Katie's online name has a question. Hebrews 5.9 says Jesus was perfected when he became the author of salvation to those who obey him. I'm wondering how an already perfect Jesus was perfected. Hebrews 5.9. How is an already perfect Jesus perfected? So being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let's back up a little bit and let's get a little bit more details. I guess we could go through just verse 8 and it'll give us the context we need. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Um, I'm Because of this verse, actually, I'm inclined to be on the side of those who think that Jesus being in submission to the Father was primarily something that was happening during the incarnation. And it happens afterwards too. It goes on for eternity, I believe. But there's a 
because scripture clearly says that. But the incarnation presented a special moment where Jesus is in submission to the Father. So when it says he learned obedience, I mean, it was he actually went through the process of being obedient to the Father and only doing what the Father said. Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John. I'm only doing that which the Father shows me. He always glorifies the Father. He honors him. Philippians says that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus was obedient. And it was a new thing for him to be totally obedient as this human as opposed to, right? So learned obedience isn't like learned like education-wise. I don't think it means that. Jesus is like, I wonder what obedience is like. I lack intellectual information about obedience. It was rather... He went through the process of obeying and obeying perfectly. So being made perfect isn't him going from a state of moral imperfection to a state of perfect moral perfection, which is kind of what would be a problem for us, right? Rather, this word perfect in the Greek, it can mean also just be complete or mature. Jesus went from a state of exaltation to a state of humility as a little baby. And then he walked in perfect obedience his entire life, facing every temptation, but never failing. And so in that, he was perfected. He walked perfectly. He finished the job. But he didn't have like a moral perfection that went from a lower degree of moral perfection to a higher degree of moral perfection. Rather, he uh, finished the job of obeying perfectly. You could look at it this way to help understand. Let's say 10 days before the crucifixion, has Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father? Well, yeah, but is it is he done? No, his job isn't finished yet. It's not complete. And that's that word perfect can also mean complete. Jesus, 10 days later, when he was crucified, there he has completed the job. He has, it's perfected. So when you realize the word complete is meant there too, it's not just about moral perfection. It has to do with more than that. Um, I hope that gives you some things to think about. Lisa Betger, I'm going to try and move more quickly now just because I'm going to run out of juice. And um, I say this is fairly successful for my first attempt to do a stream since getting sick. Um, Lisa Betger says, hi, Mike. My seven-year-old asks asked me why we need an earthly father and mother, but only a heavenly father. I started to say God fills both roles, but was hesitant about that in, in this gender-confused culture. Um What's interesting, Lisa, is that the point that your seven-year-old brought up is actually a major talking point for the mother god cult based in South Korea that is known as the World Mission Society Church of God. They say this all the time. Everyone on earth needs an earthly father and mother in order to be born. So therefore, we not only have a heavenly father, we have a heavenly mother. And so they worship this woman, a literal 70-something-year-old, maybe she's 80 now, woman living in uh, South Korea, did I say North? It's South Korea, um, whose name is Zengil Ja, right? She's just this, this old lady. They call her Mother God. Uh, craziness. But but that's how they use it. Now, Lisa, I want to first acknowledge that I don't expect a seven-year-old to have great, like, reasoning skills. <laughs> I expect them to have good questions, but I don't particularly expect them to have perfect reasoning skills. If, if I was to approach this with a seven-year-old, I would say, God, uh, well, Scripture tells us that God's our Father and that there is no one with Him. So there's no mother. Scripture tells us that. There's actually one time in Israel where they tried to worship a heavenly mother figure, and her name's Asherah. They've even found in ancient Israel this, like, 
<clears throat> plaque type thing that was that was for a, a temple or tabernacle, um, some sort of temple structure. And it says like to God and his Asherah. And they saw this Asherah character as the queen of heaven. That's what she was called, queen of heaven. And they worshiped her alongside God. Something God hated, right? Jeremiah talks about it extensively. He really hates this. He's like, no, no. He would have just told them like, hey, you just got the name wrong. Of course, there's a heavenly mother. But instead, he just rebukes them and and harshly rebukes them for it. So these are these Asherah poles they would put up in worship and this, this you know, queen of heaven picture. God, God hates that idea. So you could say God's actually very offended by that. Your seven-year-old might understand that. Um, but I would also just add, you and me need a mother and a father because we are reproduced biologically, right? Mom and dad create us by having intercourse, conceiving a child. Mom bears the child to full term, gives birth, and they raise a child. Is that how God made Adam and Eve? No, right? Like God made Adam and Eve through direct creative power. He forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, not from a womb. There's no, Adam comes from no womb. He forms Eve from a piece of Adam, right? Eve does not come from a womb of some heavenly mother. So if we're going to say that because you and me have a mother and father, God has to have mother and father, we're also going to have to start postulating heavenly intercourse, giving birth to, 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 to humans, and that's going to be really problematic. That is also Mormon theology. Uh, Mormon theology holds that God has at least one wife, if not many, many wives. In fact, Brigham Young style Mormon theology would teach that you need lots of wives if you're going to make enough babies to populate a whole planet because they're just going to be pregnant you know, billions of times. Um, so it's better to have lots of wives so you could really populate a planet. Um, Brigham Young said if you didn't practice polygamy, um, then you're like, and if you reject polygamy, then you're not even, you're not even really a Mormon. And, it, and if you look up Brigham Young to know how important of a figure he is. He's the guy who took over after Joseph Smith passed away. He's hugely important in their theology. So <clears throat> this is this is bad, bad theology. Obviously, an innocent seven-year-old question. Hopefully, those give you some quite, some ways to answer that. Uh, how an innocent question can actually stumble towards really dangerous teachings. Um, but don't freak out about your kid. Just freak out about the bad teaching. <laughs> All right, number eleven. Bobby Rice <clears throat> says, "Do believers eventually overcome big sins like lust? What if we don't before we die? Does that mean we were never saved?" Uh, three questions here. Uh, do believers eventually overcome big sins like lust? Um, sort of, the answer is yes-ish, but the eventual overcome of sin is when you die. When I put off, this is what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. Read 1 Corinthians 15, how it describes what happens upon our resurrection, right? Uh, and, and part of it's upon our death because I put off this mortal flesh, this corruption, and I put on incorruption. Paul elsewhere assigns the desires for, to sin, he assigns that to the flesh, and that flesh will will be corrupt, will eventually die and perish and be gone, and then I will have a new body that is righteous. In other words, when I die and am resurrected, in particular, I will then have no wicked motivations, no evil desires, no hopeful, no desire to sin. That so that does happen, but it happens not at some level of maturity, like when you're seven years a Christian or 20 or 50 years after being saved, now you don't have to struggle with sin anymore. No, no, you're going to struggle with sin until the day you die. On the other hand, 
Christians are supposed to grow in sanctification. I just don't have like a point where I go, hey, when you reach level 23 of Christianity, you stop sinning. Um, I don't think that that's true. So your first question, do believers eventually overcome big sins like lust? Yes, for sure, at death. And you'll progressively, hopefully, overcome as you progressively serve Christ. But guess what? That's not guaranteed. You can you can backslide, spiritually speaking. You can go downhill instead of uphill. We have plenty of examples of that and discussion of that in Scripture. So it's not like a guaranteed automated process where you just get godlier just by being longer in Christ, right? Like that's, no, no your decisions now. Uh, Ephesians puts it this way. Actually, let me let me take you there so you can see this. These are your options. Um, <clears throat> so put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Um, and some translations put this a little differently. Uh, it's growing corrupt or becoming corrupted so that the old man is progressively getting worse if you're yielding to those deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not automatic. You've got to do this all the time. Every day you got to do this to follow Jesus. I have to do this. And there's times where I've done it. I, I have put on the old man and in a sense, set aside the new self uh, as a Christian. There's no guarantee that you won't do this. Just be like, just because you're at least you're a pastor, you serve for like 30, 40, 50 years, you serve the church, and then you retire. And now you no longer have those regular routines that kept you ministering to people and, and praying and studying the word. And so all of a sudden, your latter years, you just fall down spiritually. You become grumpy and mean and selfish and rude. Oh, this has happened many times. But does that mean that you're not saved? I, I don't I don't say that. I don't. <laughs> so I, I, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, if somebody is living in gross and continual sins, it does give you reason, and I'm be very, please hear me carefully. It gives you reason to wonder whether they're truly saved. But it doesn't give me this permission to just conclude not saved, not saved, not saved, and just point my finger at people and quickly decide for them. What it does do is it makes it harder to be confident that they're saved. So I don't usually say to somebody, you're living that way, you're not saved. And more often I would say something like, boy, you're living this way and it's continual, it's ongoing. It's unrepentant. It makes me less confident in your salvation. And I think that, that that's a more wise approach, in my opinion. Uh, number 12, Citrus Slices says, how do you know what job slash career God wants you to pursue? Um, well, you you don't, Citrus. Um, and this is annoying, I know. I agree. What I do think we can do is with, with this is acknowledge a few things. In Scripture... We don't have this idea that God is going to sort of have like um, a job that you're supposed to pursue and you have to sort of figure out the clues to know what this job is. And that's that's how he'll use you in your life. And if you do something different, your kind of life is derailed and you're not going to be used by God. I, I don't see that in scripture. I fully believe that you may in fact have many options available to you and that God may glorify you as a teacher or a truck driver or a, a pastor. Or maybe as, um, 
I don't know, a, a game designer. <laughs> like, like I may glor now those those different choices may one may be better than others for the kingdom of God. It's hard for you to know which one that is always, but that's true. That's just the reality of human life and decisions we make. So how do you make the decision on which one to do? Well, I, I actually lean here on gifting, not on uh, calling. Now, let me explain why. Calling is this idea of God's told me I'm supposed to do this. Now, if you have that revelation from God, if the Holy Spirit has revealed to you, I'm calling you to do this, then you should go for it. Like easy peasy, solved, problem solved. But if you don't have the calling thing, you can't make God tell you what job to get. Most of us, I think, don't get that from the Lord. So if you don't have that, what do you fall on? I think you fall on gifting. Ask yourself what you're good at. at. Not what you want to do. Ask what you're good at. What are you skilled at? What are you gifted at? Then pursue a job where you can utilize those gifts because then you can bring a, bring a, bring, bring a big blessing to others through that job, more so than somebody else doing that job. Let's say that you're really good at fishing, okay? And so you start a business that, you know, um, that's, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're, you're going out and you're collecting fish and selling them to people and you're feeding people and you're helping people and all this sort of thing. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but you weren't really good at video game design, but you pursue that because you liked video game design. So now you're a suboptimal game designer. You're not very good at it. You don't really accomplish as much. Do you see what I mean? It's just on a pragmatic level, pursue what you're good at. And I think this is consistent with the way the Holy Spirit works in us because according to scripture, the Spirit gives us gifts and we're supposed to use those gifts in the church to bless others. That is what we do. Our function in the church depends upon our gifts. So I look at what I'm good at as a way of determining what I should do. I think that's a smart way to pursue job or career. Um, there's other factors. Um, what does that job market look like? What kind of education does it require? Can I afford that? All sorts of other things to consider, but those are some things. Uh, Ryan Compton says, can you explain how Ephesians 5.25 is a particularly masculine command? Many verses, including John 15, 12 and 13, call all believers to love one another sacrificially. Ephesians 5.25. So how is this particularly masculine? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, I think what everybody should recognize is it's obviously masculine by virtue of it simply saying husbands love your wives. This word husbands cannot apply to wives. This word wives cannot apply to husbands. Um, so there's definitely something going on there. And when you look at the whole passage, you'll see there's, 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 um, separation of responsibilities here. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Let's Let's look at that. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So, like, is that saying that the wife isn't supposed to love her husband? Well, no. I think that God wants us to be smart enough to recognize that. Like, that, yeah, wives are called to love husbands. Husbands are called to love wives. But in the relationship between a husband and wife, where she submits to his authority, there is a special call to a husband that he must self-sacrificially love his wife. Why is that special? Because he, him having authority is a potential for him to oppress or harm her. And to and so especially him who has authority must self-sacrificially love the one 
whom he has authority with. So the wife has to submit. But the husband, you better love her, sacrificing yourself, your desires, your wants, your comfort for her benefit. That is how you will lead properly. If he doesn't do that, if he doesn't emphasize this with husbands, then they're going to be bad husbands. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt their marriage and it's going to hurt the representation of Jesus and the church. Look at how Jesus, while he's in charge of the church, right? More so than a husband is in charge of the In a greater sense, he, Jesus is completely and utterly in charge of all things with the church. Uh, the husband has a leadership role with his wife, but it's, it's not perfectly parallel, even though the Bible does parallel them to, to an extent. Um, but look at Jesus. The way that he leads us, it also involves at its heart his self-sacrificial love for us. He goes to the cross for us, dies for us, rises again. A husband is to call to follow that as well. It's especially masculine because what's especially needed among leaders is that they're not concerned about themselves, but they're very concerned about those that they lead. Um, they're not focused upon their wants and desires and agendas and goals, but they're very much concerned not just about the wants and desires, but the benefit, the nutrition, the, the health, the well-being of those they lead. Right? So then... I think, anyway, I think that answers the question. So number 14, Brittany Howard says, I've studied Acts verse by verse, and I've noticed that in some parts the writer uses we and us, chapter 28, for example, was Luke with Paul on his missionary journeys. Brittany, this is awesome. You're, good job, Brittany, okay? You're pulling out insights that only come when you really look verse by verse at scripture. Like who else reads Acts and never notices this, right? But you noticed it. So it appears that Luke is with Paul only sometimes in the book of Acts. But he signals this by saying we. Right? Notice that like in, in the gospel of, of Luke, he doesn't ever say we because he, he interviewed eyewitnesses. Read Luke chapter 1. He interviews eyewitnesses, but he's not the eyewitness. Um, in the book of Acts, he has different sources, but one of the sources is himself. He was actually with Paul. Like he's with Paul on the boat over here and then he's not with Paul over here. So you can actually track these things and follow them. It's super neat stuff. And yeah, you're right. You you 100% got it right, Brittany. Good job. Um, number 15, Boat Captain says, if the Codex Vaticanus is the oldest Bible, how much does it differ from modern Bibles, if at all? Um, okay, so that's a really hard question to answer because there could be tiny little variations at, at, at a, in a million different places. So it's like, how do you quantify that with an amount? So here's, here's how I've heard people talk about this. Um, so it, first off, Codex Vaticanus might be the old, is it the oldest? I'm trying to, I just don't remember right now between um, Alexander, the Alexandrian. Anyway, I don't remember which one's older off the top of my head. I should know this, but I haven't studied it in a while. Um, but let's say that's the oldest. Um, uh, it's not actually the oldest of every section of the Bible. So we have manuscripts or little, even sometimes pieces of say like the Gospel of John, a little piece like the size of a credit card with stuff written on front and back that would date back to an earlier time than that. So we we can actually trace back scripture earlier than that. Um, then we have quotes in the church fathers, some of whom wrote before that time. So this is, it's it you know, Vaticanus is just a compilation. It's like the entire text of scripture, right? That That's what's unique about it. It's, it's so much at a very early time. Um, how much does it differ from our current Bibles? Not much at all. Um, the differences are very small. And 
what textual critics do, which I'm glad they do, is they don't just pick one manuscript like Vaticanus and then say, let's translate that word for word as is, and let's ignore all the other manuscripts, like little pieces of John or Mark or, or quotes from the church fathers over here. They don't just ignore all that stuff. They put it all together and compare it to try to come out with the most accurate, closest to the original writing possible. So there are some variations, but they're not going to be um, anything that's going to freak you out as a Christian, I don't think. Um, if you're interested in, oh, where is that? <clears throat> if you're interested in really learning about this more, um, what I would recommend, Boat Captain, <laughs> uh, you might check out this book, Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. This one just came out in, in recent years. It just recently came out. And th this is written by two believers, Huxon and Gurry, who are very much holding to the authority and the, and the trustworthiness of the scriptures, but they'll get deep into these issues for those who are interested in doing it. The only thing I'd offer is this, Boat Captain and others who are looking to it, please be patient. When it comes to manuscripts, avoid quick little snippy answers to tough questions about large amounts of data and take and be willing to take time if you really want to understand the issues to do some study. This is this is an accessible book that you could read on on you know without having a bunch of college education in textual criticism. So I would recommend that. Um, but yeah, there's there's basically nothing you should be really worried about. Um, one area where I think it would be different, I'll give you an example, is I think in Vaticanus probably the biggest area is John chapter eight. Right, so John seven fifty three, like the end of John seven and chapter eight through verse twelve, so like thirteen verses, I think it is, um, are not. I think they're not present in in Vaticanus, I believe. Uh, but then I'm one of those who's of the persuasion that those were not originally in John those verses. And if you look at whatever Bible you own, most likely in most of them, not all, there's going to be footnotes that talk about that issue. So this is not a surprise to anybody. Um, yeah, I wonder if they have the first John passage about the the, the Father, Son, and Spirit in there. I just don't know. <clears throat> anyway, there's some more research you can do on it. Lorencia uh, Handayani says, how to overcome fear of dark ever since I was young until now, I'm 25 years old, it's hard for me to fall asleep every night because I'm scared that there might be an evil watching me sleeping. Um, Lorencia, I, I don't know that I have the wisdom for you on this. Um, like when I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark, like a lot of kids. I remember the classic thing. And the, the thing is, as a child, I don't know if my ch child experience would transfer to an adult. Obviously, you're dealing with something different, I think, as an adult. But I remember turning the light off and jumping across the room into my bed, right? Because I felt like something was under my bed going to grab my ankles or something like that. And as I got... I don't know what age this was, but I got to the point where I, I was like, part of my brain was like, this is ridiculous. But my fear center was still just completely triggered when the lights went off. So I just launched into the bed. I remember how I handled this, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is what you should do, but I don't know. Here's what I did. Turn off the light. I walked over to the edge of my bed so that my feet <laughs> slid under my bed as a kid, right? Um, and then I stood there and just held still in the dark in my room because I was scared there was something under the bed that was gonna hurt me, but I didn't think that was true. I thought that this was an irrational fear. So I stood there and I just stood there. And I, I did this a number of times 
and then my fear of the of the dark then was gone. Um, that, that my own personal experience, but I didn't have it reinforced from the age of like seven to the age of twenty five. So I don't know what how that would translate to somebody your age. I would just maybe look into psychological tips on how to overcome irrational fears. Um, uh, there, there's nothing more powerful about the lights being off and evil watching you when you sleep, that sort of thing. Um, if you feel like this and you felt like this your entire life, I would reinforce that that's probably an irrational fear um, and not something grounded in reality. Now, you might connect this to your Christian faith by thinking, yeah, but demons are real, so I could be right, right? Um, that's the nature of irrational fears, though, is because it might be true, therefore I'm going to believe and act like it is true. That's the nature of irrational fears. Um, I'm going to drive to the store, but you might get in an accident. You're right, I might. Then I'm going to believe that I will get in an accident, so I'll never leave my house. You know, then someone has agoraphobia and they'll never leave their home. That's an irrational fear based on a super unlikely possibility. From what you're describing, it's a natural human fear of the dark connected to spiritual beliefs about evil spirits that don't seem to be consistent with what I actually see evil spirits doing in scripture, just watching you when the light's off and then they don't watch you when the light's on. Like, what, why would I think spirits don't watch me when the lights are on? Like, it's like if they're there, they're not. Lights seems like it would have nothing to do with it. <laughs> anyway, I'm so sorry if I'm not helping you out here. Laurencia, um, God help you, give you wisdom, give you peace, and know this above all else. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. This is my biblical answer to that fear. Even if a demonic spirit sought to watch me, I have nothing to fear because greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. <clears throat> Elijah B. says, how should we understand 1 Corinthians, well, when you got a lot of scripture here, 1, 18 through 2, 5, verse 14, and 3, verse 18 to 19. Okay, so that's a lot of scripture. I probably won't be able to cover it all right now as we're coming to the end of the, of the Q&A. You said, Ray Comfort quoted this to say, Bible stories are supposed to sound dumb. Can't this be quoted to justify any dumb-sounding false teaching? Okay, well, Elijah, I I, I know Ray Comfort uh, personally. <laughs> so I hesitate to, to, to take that description of, of Ray and think that that's the fullness of what he was saying. So I'm just going to say, I'm not going to comment on that um, as coming from Ray, but let me comment on the idea that <clears throat> you're getting at here, which is 1 Corinthians 1. Let's read some of it to try to maybe understand your question better. All right. Um, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It doesn't mean that wise people can't know God. It means they didn't learn about God through highfalutin reasoning and um, and debating. Actually, debating's in their own purpose because there were rhetoricians whose main thing was the debates. Um, <clears throat> it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand... 
Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Notice this part right here in verse 25. In the end of it all, he's saying, look, I'm not saying the cross is foolishness. And if you'll look, read carefully, he never says the cross is actually fool, foolish. He says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. In the end, in verse 25, he's like, yeah, but God's wisdom is, or God's foolishness, what the world considers foolish, is wiser than men in their wisdom. The weakness of God, Jesus dying on the cross, is stronger than men in their strength. I could read on, but I, I think I understand the point now that you're getting at. Should we say, therefore, that Bible stories are supposed to sound dumb? Um, I think that's a clumsy way to put it, but I will say this. If it's true that worldly unsaved people are um, likely to look at the cross, especially those who consider themselves highly educated, and look at the gospel and think of it as foolishness, is it also likely that they'll look at, say, Genesis creation account and think the same thing? That seems reasonable to me. At least it's, it's consistent. So there's a sense in which I would say that the world looking at Scripture and the same person who finds the gospel foolish, thinking that the Bible's teaching on slavery is messed up, and I go, but when I read and study the teaching on slavery, I see something that would have completely outlawed the, the um, American slavery that we saw in years past, that would have punished everybody involved in the whole process, that would have created every city would be a sanctuary city. If any, if any slave runs away, he must be given... Um, a place to stay in whatever city he goes, and you do not return him to his master. This is what scripture actually says, but they don't see this. They only see what they, what their worldview would like for them to see. And so they see foolishness where there's actually wisdom. So this is consistent to me, actually. I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. But it's a clumsy to say the Bible stories are supposed to sound dumb. Uh, eh, I wouldn't say that. Right? Like, I think the Bible stories are brilliant. So why would I say they're supposed to sound dumb? The problem is not the way they sound. The problem is the person hearing it, it's foolishness to them because of issues they have going on spiritually. That would be the consistent thing with this passage. I, I hope that gives you some things to think about. I do agree with you, Elijah. It's a very bad idea to think that you can say, well, if you think my doctrine sounds foolish, it must be true. Like That's like a really not a good principle to have. Um, we need solid scripture to promote our doctrines and not just the policy of, if it sounds foolish to you, I must be accurate. <laughs> uh, there we go. I meant to hit the unmute and I changed it. Okay. Um, Brandon Torres. No, that's next. Uh, Middle-aged mama, middle mama says, why did John the Baptist still have disciples after he clearly pointed out Jesus? Shouldn't they have followed Jesus? Yeah, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, so John the Baptist still had disciples, but John the Baptist still had a race to run. Um, he did say, maybe we could filter what we see happening through this phrase. G John says, he must increase and I must decrease. This is when he talked about himself and Jesus. When Jesus sh shows up on the scene, John's like, yeah, he needs to increase. I need to decrease. And that's exactly what we see happen. From the baptism of John, Several of the people who were there following John started following Jesus. 
And then some stayed with John. Now that wasn't wrong. It wasn't necessarily wrong that they stayed with John, but, but may, maybe there was a, a, a problem with it. But John doesn't really know the plan other than I know he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I know I'm preaching baptism and repentance and salvation, and he's the ultimate one who's going to bring it. But I, but he didn't understand how. Like even John didn't understand how. He was like so many believing in the Messiah, but not really understanding fully how this was going to take place. So anyway, John is not, it's not like when he baptized Jesus, John's ministry ended completely. He still goes around and continues to point people to Christ. He still goes around and preaches repentance, but his ministry starts its decline at that moment. So he still had disciples and those disciples would have respected and even, even followed the teachings of Jesus, but they were just staying with John and helping him because he wasn't completely done yet. Uh, after he was imprisoned, then beheaded by Herod, obviously, then that, that ministry just ended. Um, and this might explain where Apollos in the book of Acts comes from. So Apollos preaches Jesus, but he doesn't know a lot of the detail. Let me, actually, let me share with you. This could explain the overlap of Apollos. <clears throat> All right. In Acts chapter 18, it says, A Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. It seems like Apollos was, maybe he was a follower of John the Baptist, that's possible, or he was influenced by the followers of John the Baptist, who were still around after Jesus got baptized. So they don't know all the teachings of Jesus, maybe they know some of them, but they don't know all of them. And he teaches accurately. Now, now he was pulled aside by Priscilla and Aquila, and they taught him the way of God more accurately. And then Apollos becomes like a champion for the gospel and all this great stuff. But it's interesting to see this. Like, would Apollos have been around in Ephesus if John the Baptist just stopped his ministry entirely after the baptism of Jesus? Maybe not. Maybe this is one of the people who John continued to impact even after that baptism, which is why his ministry didn't just end. It instead declined and then eventually ended when John was behead, beheaded by Herod. All right, let's go to question number 19. Brandon Torres says, pardon me. Brandon Torres says, if God hates animal cruelty, why did God require animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Um, so Brandon, I tend to lean in on this. Um, some would try to suggest like, I don't know, they would try to get, get past it, but instead I lean into it and I would suggest this. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's meant to show you a picture of the death and sacrifice of Christ. These animals aren't able to actually remove your sin, but the process of me taking my sin, let's say on the Day of Atonement, confessing the sins of me and my people over this animal, transferring it in a sense to them, and then this animal dies for those sins, this is meant to make me feel, in a sense, the pain of the cross of Jesus. If your heart hurts because these animals died, then you can see that their arrow is pointing to the pain of Jesus on the cross and the heart of the Father hurting as he offers his son for us to be saved. In that light, I think that if this animal existed just to be a picture of the pain and suffering 
and sacrifice of Jesus and of the Father, then I think that this was a worthwhile cause. Now, if I can eat an animal, which I do believe is, is morally appropriate, I can eat an animal, that means I kill it in order for me to consume it so that my life might live, how much more can I take an animal and let its life become a symbol, point, an arrow pointing me to eternal life in Christ and the life-giving effect of the cross? I, I lean into this one, Brandon. I say, um, it's not animal cruelty where you're just harsh on an animal because you just feel like it or you're just masochistic or sadist, sadistic. I think it's sadistic. I don't know why I mix those two up. Um, you know, I just enjoy inflicting pain and suffering. Um, also, the animals that were killed were not <clears throat> killed through through like the most inhumane means either. And so it's not like there was just this torturous things, these torturous things going on. Um, it was similar to the way that they would have been killed had they been just cooked for food. In addition to that, when the animals were killed, through a lot of the offerings, they were still consumed. The priest would consume, the person would consume, they would both consume different parts of the animal. So they're still offering food. There's just an added layer of the meaning of the suffering of, of the cross. Yeah. Number 20, last question for today. Brandon O'Toole says, what's your take on 2 Thessalonians 2.7? I've always used this as a proof text for the church being removed before the time of the Antichrist. That and 1 Thessalonians 5.9, thoughts, thanks. So I do slightly hesitate to jump in to a complicated issue off the top of my head, but I'm going to share these things with that caveat. This is off the top of my head, um, what I can remember right now, sometimes even three minutes of just thinking about things like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So take it with a grain of salt. Um for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, so this is a big debate amongst those who are, say, in doing the end times discussion. Um, there is this mystery of lawlessness, and what is that? And then there's there's a person, a he, and this he is restraining the lawlessness. And so what they'll say is, well, the lawless one is ultimately the Antichrist. And there's good contextual reasons for this. Okay, and I'll read on, verse 8. And then the lawless one, so this mystery of lawlessness, is being, this lawlessness is being restrained, and then there's an individual, particular lawless one, he's going to show up when this mysterious individual, he, is taken out of the way. Um, so the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this is ultimately Jesus is going to stop this person with his second coming. So we see this as a very end times event. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So th this seems to be talking to me, revelation, future. I'm, I'm pre-millennial right now. I believe that the millennium is going to come in the future, uh, but that it will be preceded by these sort of end times events. And there is this Antichrist character we read about in Scripture. Jesus destroys him with his second coming. Another reason why I don't think this happened in 70 AD. Okay, I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but let me return to your question. Um, what's my take on Thessalonians 2.7? I've always used this as a proof text for the church being removed before the time of the Antichrist. Okay, this is why they see the church here. The, mystery, the real mystery isn't just the lawlessness or the lawless one, but it's who's he? Who's the he that's taken out of the way? And so different theories are put out there. Um, <clears throat> some say it's the rapture of the church. He refers to 
ultimately the moment where the church is taken up before the tribulation or at the beginning of it. And then the Antichrist himself is revealed and he does all these crazy things and God gives people over to the delusion there and then Jesus destroys him when he comes. Um, the challenge there is that when is the church ever called he? And so people people push against this view and they say, oh, it, the church is not a he, the church is a she, the church is the bride of Christ. So the response from the pro-rapture side, uh, the pre-trib rapture side is to say, well, he doesn't, re he represents the Holy Spirit because it's not just the church. It's the Holy Spirit who is always referred to as he. So the Holy Spirit is the one who is, um, sometimes the Spirit's referred to in a neuter term because the word uh, pneumatos. But anyway, the, the Holy Spirit, they'll say, is he. And when the church is raptured, the preserving power of the Holy Spirit in the world is also removed so that then the lawless one is able to take over because there's no longer a group of people in every nation resisting him because they're Christians. So that interpretation would work. He is the Holy Spirit, and he's removed out of the way. Um, the only challenge, uh, I mean, the strongest challenge to that view to me seems to be the fact that it just seems very vague, like I'm reading a lot into this. He who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. It takes he to refer to the Holy Spirit, although we don't know why, like there's nothing in the context that tell, that I'm aware of that tells me that that's the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that tells me who that is. It's just He. So I take this to be the Holy Spirit, but not just the Holy Spirit. I take it to be the Holy Spirit working through believers. So he, it's not just a work the Spirit does. It's a work believers do with the Holy Spirit in us. That doesn't feel very much at all. Like it's indicated in the text, it just seems like I'm reading a lot into it. I'm adding a lot of extra stuff. Um, the next thing is I'm 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 concluding that restraining the restraining of the mystery of lawlessness is done through the church. I'm not sure about that. Um, and then I conclude that the Holy Spirit is out of the way when at the rapture of the church. The pushback on this is it the interpretation works, but it adds a lot of data into some fairly vague phrases here in the scripture. And so it makes it a difficult proof text. You need to already believe the rapture before you think this verse is about the rapture, it wouldn't prove the rapture to you just by itself because you you need to you know hold certain things. I think already when you come to this passage, it doesn't mean it's that you're interpreting it wrong. You just want to be honest about where you're getting it. You also bring up First Thessalonians five nine. <clears throat> um, others have other. Oh, by the way, other interpretations aren't necessarily any better because they interpret he to be something that's not clear in the passage. Um, restraining, how he's restraining, they interpret to be something that's not clear. When he's taken out of the way, they interpret to be something that's not clear. He's also, so it just it's a tough verse to interpret. First um, Thessalonians five nine, you say you couple that with this one. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this verse has been used by pro rapture side, and I'm a bit on the fence on this topic. Okay, the t I believe we are we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. I would call that a rapture event, right? Uh, being caught up. Um, but as far as when do I place it on the timeline of pre trib, mid trib, post trib, or or or, or what? I, I don't know. Um, so I can't offer as much clarity as I'd like to offer because I don't have the clarity. But I could talk about it because I've, <laughs> I've I've sat under that teaching for many years. So. Um, for God has not destined us for wrath. They'll take this to be the um, the wrath of God poured out during the during the tribulation, or perhaps the great tribulation. 
So let's say, hey, when God's wrath is poured out on the earth, right? There are literally like seven bowls of what? His wrath in Revelation. Well, God hasn't destined us for wrath. And so we're obviously going to be out of here. Um, I, I would have actually two pushbacks for that. Well, I'm not saying that therefore the rapture position is wrong, but I, I definitely have pushbacks on this that use of this verse. So let's back up a little bit um, and get a little more context. Um, I'm going to back up a lot, actually. Okay, so now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day, to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's talking about spiritual awakeness here of serving and following Jesus and, and staying in the light of Christ. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, unlike who? The world. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It seems to me that the general context of this salvation in verse 9, that it's what we gain through Christ, salvation, and being not destined for wrath, that this has to do not just with um, a tribulation time, but with the entirety of God's wrath being poured out. I think that you could be a post-trib rapture person and still agree fully with this verse because of two factors. One, the primary way in which we escape God's wrath is that we are not judged for our sins. Two, even when the wrath of God is being poured out in Revelation, it's not as though the church, the Christians who are alive at that time, because there will be there will be believers alive, even if you think there's rapture happens, you still think there's a revival and believers are alive at the time. They're not getting the wrath of God on them, right? Because what you would be saying, if you're going to interpret this verse to say, a, I'm not destined for wrath. B, if you're if you're present in the tribulation, you're destined for wrath. C, therefore, we're not present in the tribulation. Like that's how the rapture art case would work in verse nine. I, I don't think this is a good verse for it because believers will be present during the revelation, even on a rapture view. It's not like they think there's no Christians alive at the time. Read about all these this Jewish revival and revelation. So they're not going to say those guys are destined for wrath because they're just present on earth during the tribulation. That formula doesn't work anymore. In addition, when you read in Revelation about, about the, the wrath being poured out, it's often selective. God's pouring out wrath on the earth, but God's like, but not upon my believers, not upon the ones who have my, my mark written on their forehead. All right, so there, there is a distinction, just like in Egypt, when uh, the, the judgment came upon the Egyptians, most of the time... It came upon just the Egyptians and not upon the Jews, not upon the Israelites. So do you, do you get this idea that just because you're present at the location where God's wrath is pouring out, it doesn't mean his wrath is poured out on you individually. Therefore, I think this is not a good verse to prove a pre-trib rapture. 
Um, so I know that it's going to upset a lot of people. I think I think probably the majority of my audience are pre-trib rapture people. So I'm not trying to be people pleasing here. Um, I'm just trying to be honest with what I see in scripture. Feel free to disagree with me. I know you do. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, one of these years, I would love to do a, a deep dive on the topic of the rapture. It's just nowhere near the top of my list on things I want to cover right now. So Brandon O'Toole, I hope you find some of that helpful. Probably you'll more just find it annoying. <laughs> but uh, yeah. All right, let's 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 close in prayer. Um, and thank you guys for sticking around and hanging in with me because this is a bit rough. My brain's still kind of fuzzy, I guess. Um, and uh, my cough is not going to let me teach uh, straight through a study right now. I don't want to have a study like this, even if a Q&A is. So I'm going to wait on that. I'll keep prepping behind the scenes. I will keep working to get ahead in my studies so that I can teach the next series of women in ministry videos more, more quickly with less delays. So just know I'm still working as much as I can on days when I can. Um, yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that we know we're not appointed to wrath, but to salvation. This is this is the biggest theme and the biggest thing in our life. Not, not the timing of the rapture, but the fact of eternal life and joy. Life in all its fullness and its abundance in Christ forever. That this is our certain future and destiny and Jesus purchased it with his death and proved it with his resurrection. And so we stand confident in Christ. Let us remember now the incredible hope we have so that we will see this world as the passing thing that it is, so that we will utilize it rightly, serving you and bringing others with us into the kingdom of Christ. We pray that you'd use us to evangelize the world, use us to share the hope of the, of the cross, even if others sometimes see it as foolishness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'll see you guys when I see you.